0: This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin.
1: Hi, I'm Joan Neuberger, editor of Not Even Past, and your host for today's episode of 15-Minute History. And we are in London today, taping on our laptops instead of in the UT studio, so the sound quality may not be up to our usual standards but I'm in London because I'm here with Adam Shapiro, who's a historian of science at Birkbeck University of London. Hi, Adam. Welcome to 15-Minute History. Hi, hey
0: John. Thanks for having me.
1: Uh, Adam's going to be in Austin on April 17th to speak about his research on natural theology and the debate over slavery. And today we're going to talk about the early reception of evolution and Darwinism in the United States. Um, So let's start off by talking about how controversial it was. Was evolution a controversial topic in the 19th century?
0: Um, In some ways, it was quite controversial. I mean, you have a range of religious opinions, some people immediately declaring that Darwinism is atheism, but you also have a lot of people who are trying to reconcile or successfully reconciling evolution with their religion or even saying that evolution strengthens their belief in a God you've got a full range and you've got a very wide range of debate and people who are you know in public speaking societies that are debating the question quite open-mindedly um, So it's controversy suggests that there's sort of something at stake and I'm not sure that that was the, I, I wouldn't call it controversy because of that.
1: So there were differences of opinion, but were, yeah. it wasn't very heated yet. It, it Not compared to, say, today. Mm-hmm. So why then does um, an anti-evolution movement arise? Well, it
0: sort of, I mean, it makes sense to me that evolution doesn't really become controversial until it's being taught in the schools. And so in the 19th century, that's not what's going on. It's in the early 20th century, in the 1910s and 1920s, that you begin to get Uh, the development of a new school subject of biology. And that's really when anti-evolution becomes a movement.
1: So they only started teaching biology at the end of the 19th century?
0: They'd been teaching different forms of the life sciences. If you'd walked into a science classroom in a high school in America in the late 19th century, you'd probably see two separate semesters, one of botany, one of zoology, and a little bit of sort of human hygiene and human physiology tacked on to the end. Some places might have called that biology, but that was largely sort of as a, let's publish two textbooks together, or let's just do, integrate it under a single department as a cost-saving measure. What starts to change in the 1910s and 20s um, is a recognition that plants and animals actually have a lot more in common than than previously understood.
1: Mm-hmm. So botany, plants, zoology, animals, why did they come together suddenly then, or suddenly or not?
0: Uh, I mean, scientists had understood that plants and animals have a lot in common. They both contain cells. They both engage in reproduction that makes use of laws of heredity. They're both products of and subject to the laws of evolution. And they both are involved in metabolism. They're also plants and animals, things that human beings use in practical applications. And it used to be the case in a mostly agricultural country that – Raising livestock versus growing crops was a very different process. But as as the country became more urbanized and more industrialized, though the differences for, reasons for keeping those apart became less and less
1: necessary. So what changed in terms of the public school system that um, affected the teaching of biology?
0: Um, so you begin, like I said, at the end of the 19th century, you're beginning to get really shifting demographics in America. You've got a new influx of immigration, especially in the major urban areas, New York, Chicago, Philadelphia. and There's a real recognition that for most of the people, say, living in these urban environments, you you don't have as wide an experience of plants and animals, but what you do have is a real pressing need for social welfare and for dealing with hygienic conditions zoology changes when the most experience you have of animals is sort of rats and roaches. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you begin to get this new teaching of biology around the 1910s, what comes to be called civic biology. And it takes these central principles, sort of cellular theory, metabolism, evolution, and heredity, and it integrates them into the curriculum around the idea that The reason why you would teach these is because they have practical applications. So the reason you teach about cellular theory is because you're teaching about quarantine and disease prevention and the germ theory of disease. And the reason why you're teaching about metabolism is because you're teaching about a healthy diet, you're teaching about food safety, and you're teaching about alcohol consumption in these years leading up to prohibition. The reason why you teach about evolution has more to do with the cultivation of artificial breeds of plants and animals for human consumption. And heredity has to do with sexual health, and it has to do with eugenic applications across society. The heredity of what was perceived to be criminality or so-called feeble-mindedness.
1: Was evolution the only thing that was controversial about the new biology?
0: Not at all. Um, In fact, one of the first things... I saw, and I was doing some research on this, in 1914, one of the first textbooks comes out that that teaches this. It's called civic biology. And the first time it becomes controversial is almost just a few months after it's published, and it's because of the teaching of eugenics. Not because eugenics itself was seen as greatly controversial, but because of the somewhat sexually explicit language that was used to describe it. And at the time, the editors of that textbook almost joke that if they bend to accommodate every opinion, what's next? Someone's going to complain about evolution? Mm -hmm. 10 years later, it's not a joke.
1: So why were books like Civic Biology used um, in places like Tennessee?
0: Yeah, so this is the problem, or this is perhaps the unforeseen um, chain of events that leads up to the big anti-evolution clashes culminating in the Scopes Trial in 1925. Uh, these books like civic biology were intended to be used in sort of the urban industrial centers of American, of American industry. They they were intended to be used in places like New York, where most of the textbook authors had actually been from. Um, but especially in places like Tennessee and elsewhere in the South, textbooks were adopted at a state level, um. So you couldn't adopt, say, one book for Memphis
1: and another book for a small town like Dayton, Tennessee. This- Wait, but you could do that in, in states like New York and Illinois? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um So they had local adoptions or something?
0: It seems to be that mostly the southern states and the western states had moved towards a state adoption model. The main reason why they did it wasn't because they were trying to control textbook content, which is what we normally think about when we think about adoption controversies today. The main reason that they did this was an effort to negotiate kind of bulk deals and get lower prices and the concern that textbook salesmen were engaging in illegal kickback schemes or Bribery schemes, um, and so they were trying. It was an anti-corruption measure. It wasn't about uh, policing school content.
1: Mm-hmm. And um, so, how does it get adopted in in Tennessee?
0: So Tennessee adopts that, that same book I talked about that was controversial in uh, 1915. That they they adopt the 1914 textbook called the Civic Biology. They do that in 1919, um, and at the time the state was still extremely rural, extremely poor, extremely low compared to other states in literacy. Um, But there's a highly progressive effort towards modernizing the state. Um, And that really comes to a head in 1924, and it really comes to a head in the period leading up right immediately to the Scopes Trial in Tennessee.
1: So um, uh, tell us about the movement for progressive education in Tennessee and how that conflicted with the growing movement of anti-evolution. So
0: if you think about what these books taught, it isn't just that it teaches evolution. It's essentially that it's teaching this sort of ideology of urban industrial progressivism, that the point of schooling, the point of teaching children um, is to prepare them for life in a modernized society. Um, and in 1924, in the year right before the Scopes trial, there's this strong effort by the governor of Tennessee to expand compulsory education, to build more schools in the state, to build teacher training colleges, um, to generally try to modernize the state and to make it more competitive in a national environment, um, by, by bringing, by bringing the tools of modernity, if you will. Um, and this was deeply controversial, uh, not just because of the money involved, although that was part of it, but also the idea that this was a kind of cultural engineering. Um, if I was the parent of a child and living in rural Tennessee at the time, and I'm suddenly told that my child's going to be forced to go to school, and the content of what they're going to be taught is being decided at the state capitol, and I'm going to have almost no say in the matter. And moreover, what the state seems to decide to teach is about how to move away from the farms and work in the factories and live in the big cities. I don't need to open the Bible up to tell you why I have a problem with this. Mm
1: -hmm. So what happened to the governor's effort to modernize the schools?
0: The governor realized that this was going to be deeply controversial. And even before he proposed the legislation to, to, to overhaul the schools, he recognized that in 1924, the 1919 adoption was going to expire, and because they had signed a five-year contract there was going to be a new contract, the prices had gone up quite a lot in the intervening five years. and At this point, most of the textbooks were purchased directly by school parents, so that was a direct cost felt by people who voted. Suddenly they were going to feel a 50% perhaps in, or, or more increase in the price of textbooks, and it was going to happen two months before he was running for re-election. So he comes up with this plan that if people buy their books uh, a little bit early, they can basically squeeze a sixth year out of a five-year adoption cycle and postpone the decision about adopting new books until after the election and until after he has this sort of mandate to pursue his reform. The side effect of that is that it leaves an eleven-year-old, relatively out-of-date book called *Civic Biology* in the hands of John Scopes in March of 1925. Um, whereas, if you look at what could have been available to be readopted in 24, um, most of the newer books had actually begun to bend because of the lobbyist event, lobbying of anti-evolutionists. Uh, they had started to change their content or talk about evolution in a slightly less confrontational or more apologetic way. Now, after the governor gets reelected, he tries to push this legislation through, and it goes nowhere. Uh, it stalls in the legislature, and a second version of the bill is in the process of being stalled when uh, the state legislature passes the anti-evolution law. And a lot of people are writing the governor, telling him to veto it. Others are telling him to sign it. He waits until the last day possible, waits 10 business days, and he ultimately decides to sign the bill into law. The next business day after he does this, debate begins to proceed on the general education bill. It it was a clear quid pro quo.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, So the anti-evolution law comes into being partly as a compromise to get very progressive general education reform passed.
1: So the progressive general education reform gets passed while at the same time, um, there's a law prohibiting the teaching of evolution.
0: Yes. Which wasn't really seen as being a central complaint. mm -hmm. Um,
1: It wasn't a huge issue yet, but but there was some kind of anti-evolution movement already. There was,
0: Um, and it, and it begins really soon after these books like Civic Biology get started. You have a, a longer religious rhetoric, like I said, going all the way back to even before Darwin, but throughout the 19th century, of people saying that evolution um, contradicts my interpretation of religion. But that wasn't an organized movement. But this movement that was not just concerned with evolution, but was concerned about the centralization of school control and the kind of compulsory expansion of state schools co-opted that religious language. They began to use that language, and to some extent, there there was overlap in who was involved in what. Um, and so, very quickly, that school movement used decided that evolution was perhaps the most popular of the many issues that they could use because they could very explicitly point to a conflict with religion mm-hmm. as they saw it.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, so that all sets the stage for what became this celebrated trial, the Scopes trial. So um, so what was the Scopes trial?
0: So the Scopes trial was one of the strangest and most elaborate <laughs> public events in the 20th century United States. Um, on the face of it, it's a small-town misdemeanor trial in which the person accused faces the risk of a penalty of a $100 fine. It's not a major legal event. The conviction ultimately gets us set aside on a technicality. It doesn't go to the U.S. Supreme Court. It doesn't have any legal weight. But it is a huge public event because some of the most famous and most important people of the day deliberately decided to get involved. Um, Most famously, William Jennings Bryan, former presidential candidate and secretary of state, who's one of the most outspoken anti evolutionists of the time, um, offers to assist the prosecution of John Scopes. And Clarence Darrow, who's perhaps the f- most famous criminal defense lawyer of the period, offers to be one of his defense lawyers. Mm-hmm. And so very quickly, the state of Tennessee versus John Scopes really devolves into Brian versus Darrow. Mm-hmm.
1: And he was accused of, of violating the law of prohibiting the teaching of evolution.
0: The law is a little bit strange. It officially doesn't prohibit the teaching of evolution. All it prohibits is the teaching of human beings from non-human ancestors. If you pore over the pages of the book that John Scopes used when he was substitute teaching for the biology class, you could make a very strong case that he never actually taught this thing, mm-hmm. that the book never actually contains it. But obviously, an acquittal would have completely invalidated the case. The point of the case was to create the show trial. The point of the case was never about the guilt or innocence of John Scopes.
1: Mm-hmm. So we have two very, very famous um, lawyers debating each other. Um, what, um, in addition to that, what made it attract so much public interest?
0: Um, I think that there was this very deliberate attempt to create that public interest. The John Scopes relates in his memoir that the people in Dayton, Tennessee, the town where he'd been teaching, saw an advertisement uh, run by the ACLU, which at this point was a fairly small organization centered in New York, saying that they would offer free legal support to a teacher who would viol- who would willfully stand trial for violating the anti-evolution law. And they decided that if there was going to be a trial in Tennessee, it might as well be in their town because it would be a great publicity stunt. And Scopes agreed to do this because he wanted to generate—he he opposed the law— um, But the people of Dayton immediately started issuing publicity pamphlets that are quoting Sinclair Lewis's Main Street USA, trying to say the reason why this is happening in our town is not because we are a strange or abnormal place, but but, but precisely because we are the quintessential American town. And this is the quintessential American debate. The debate between science and religion is the epic question of our time. Mm
1: -hmm. So how how did the trial then shape the debate between science and religion.
0: It's weird because everybody agreed that the Scopes trial was about science and religion, but they didn't all agree on what the science was and they didn't all agree on what the religion was. And in some ways what happened, uh, was a, was a lot of speaking past one another as opposed to a constructive debate where people didn't even recognize what the other person meant or what people on the other side meant. Um, most particularly, Clarence Darrow sort of describes Brian's view in a complete caricature in which he sees Brian as believing in a 6,000-year-old earth, which Brian himself says he doesn't believe in, um, but also in believing that the Bible ought to be interpreted literally when Brian himself will say things like, the Bible is true, but I'm not quite sure necessarily how to interpret it. Um, so there's a lot of subtlety that is getting blown away Within the idea that this is this has to be an epic clash, um, and then we can redefine the terms to fit
1: that after the fact. Mm-hmm. So it becomes a big, um, a big media event, a big event that really sort of simplifies the issues in a way. Yeah,
0: in a way, it's less the case that. The issues of science and religion become a media event, and more the case that a media event is looking for issues to tell the story, and it seizes on the science and religion narrative to do that. Um, In a way, the Scopes trial teaches us what the sort of trope of evolution trial is supposed to be. One of the things I've been looking at lately is a trial involving a teacher in Nebraska who lost a job of three years before the Scopes trial because he was accused of being a Darwinist, and this went to court, he sued for slander, and he won. And this was a case that basically fell off the map. Nobody paid attention to it. It was, took place in Lincoln, Nebraska, where William Jennings Bryan had been a congressman earlier in his life. And yet, in a pre-Scopes world, that whole narrative of evolution trial hadn't existed yet.
1: Mm-hmm. So what's the biggest difference between um, evolution controversies in the 20s and what's going on today?
0: Well, for one thing, there are several different anti-evolutionary arguments out there that were not being made in the 20s. And the arguments that were being made in the 20s don't seem to still be as present. Um, in the 1920s, William Jennings Bryan was very explicit that he wasn't advocating for a 6,000-year-old Earth, despite the fact that that's what Darrow accused him of. Um, nowadays, one of the largest voices for anti-evolution is the Ken Ham and his creation museum based in Kentucky, which explicitly do endorse that and insist upon a literal interpretation of the book of Genesis that it implies that. Um, but both for those young earth creationists and for other forms of anti-evolution like intelligent design, the most important thing is the necessity of being recognized as scientific. And that has a lot to do with the way that legal cases have evolved since then. Um, But I think the biggest difference, perhaps even bigger than the substance of anti-evolution, is just the balance of power over who controls the schools. Back in the 1920s, you, you see correspondence from textbook salesmen saying, it's easier for me to convince a state board to change their curriculum to match my textbook than it is for me to convince my editor to change anything. Now it's completely the other way around. And you see that particularly... In places like Texas, where state adoption is such a big business and the kinds of political interest in every state adoption has been um, so meticulously scrutinized that whoever controls the political elements is able to control the content and no textbook company wants to even go near a controversy.
1: Well, thank you very much. Thank you, Jen.
0: For a transcript of this episode, alignments to the Texas and National Standards for Social Studies, and links to more information on this topic, visit our website at 15minutehistory.org. That's 15minutehistory.org. And for even more, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. The University of Texas is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in this or any episode of 15-Minute History do not reflect the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its constituent colleges or departments.